Hi, it's Fraser Myers here. Before we get into this week's Brendan O'Neill show, I just wanted to let you know about a hugely exciting development for Spiked Podcast. The Spiked Podcast, our weekly Spiked show hosted by myself, Tom Slater and Ella Whelan, will now be available on video every week. So if you prefer to watch rather than just listen to your podcasts, you can catch new episodes of the Spiked Podcast on the Spiked YouTube channel or on the Spiked website every Friday. So that's the Spiked Podcast every Friday on the Spiked YouTube channel or on our website at spiked-online.com. Now, on to the Brendan O'Neill Show. With the vaccine, we've, we've come close to conquering the novel coronavirus. But at the height of decision-making about these things... We so prioritized one way of knowing, yes, there's a dangerous virus, how do we address it? But there are also other harms associated with, for example, lockdowns. How will children fare psychologically? How will they continue to learn if they can't go to classrooms? Loneliness, depression, joblessness, alcoholism, suicide. So the statesman has to take all of that into account. But the scientific mentality yeah. completely overrode the better sense of many governments around the world. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Saurabh Amari. Saurabh is a returning guest to the podcast. He is a columnist, editor and author. He is the opinion editor of the New York Post and a columnist for First Things. He previously worked at the Wall Street Journal and has written for numerous other publications. He is the author of The New Philistines, a critique of the subjugation of art to identity politics, and From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. His latest book is The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. So Saurabh, let's talk about your new book, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos which is a really good book. Uh, and it's one of the few books I've read recently where every page contained an idea I hadn't really thought of before or an idea that I found quite provocative, which made me rethink things I had previously thought. I think that's a sign of a successful book. Uh, but I want to start off with the broad sweeping question that every author gets asked, which is, why this book? Why did you feel the need to write a book defending the wisdom of tradition in a time in which tradition is poo-pooed, it's not taken very seriously. What do you think it is about tradition and its wisdoms that can help to guide us through these pretty strange, weird times we live in? Yeah, so I wrote the book for my son. Uh, he was two years old when I started writing it, and now he's four years old. The reason I wrote it for him is because, frankly, I think, uh, as we've discussed on this podcast once before, I think the world that we're creating the West that we're creating or our elites are creating. Mostly it's driven by them is becoming a pretty miserable place. And it, much of it is premised on the idea of freedom. I think a disordered concept of freedom that paradoxically is leaving us less free. Mm. And, um, you know, he's named after a guy named St. Maximilian Kolbe, my son, who was canonized as a saint for, for laying, down his life for a stranger at Auschwitz. They were both prisoners at Auschwitz. 
Um, this fellow was condemned to death, but he cried out, my wife, my children, because he was, he was a father and a, and a husband. And he's a complete stranger to Maximilian Kolbe, but Kolbe volunteered to go take his place. Um, that's a pretty stark vision of, of human freedom. I've heard someone say Maximilian Kolbe was the freest person in Europe in that moment, even though he was in a concentration camp. Mm. And uh, I, God forbid, I don't, I don't want my son to be in a similar situation ever. I hope he never finds himself. But there's an account of freedom that led Maximilian Kolbe up to that point, point, And that's this idea of freedom as, as duty, as self-sacrifice, as self-giving that is contrary to the spirit of freedom or the definition of freedom that we labor under in the contemporary West. And there is a risk, I think, in our, if our culture were left to its own devices to form my son as a, as a man, as a young man, that the freedom of his namesake, the, the act of his namesake, would somehow become illegible to him because it, if, you know, freedom just means having the widest range of options to choose, um, you know, I can wear a blue shoe, I can wear a brown shoe, and that that and the, the more the less restrained I am, the freer I am. Then the action of a Colby doesn't make sense to us. Um, mm. If freedom just means material well-being, then the, the that, that that kind of sacrifice doesn't make sense to us. Even as lots of people in ordinary life continue to make great sacrifices, I mean, we recognize that. But our our philosophical ambient philosophical worldview makes the action of a cold bear, I think, insensible. So I wanted to inoculate my son or prepare him to be, to be ready to pursue a different account of freedom, which is the one I think, broadly speaking, we can find in tradition. But in order to do that, I, I posed 12 questions, 12 mm. questions that are either ignored or we think they're answered because we now have science and technology and therefore, um, or, or that they're basically superfluous one way or another, when in fact they're still pertinent to a good life as I show. And because I'm, I'm just a journalist, I'm not a, I'm not a philosopher or a theologian or a priest. The way I answer each question is through the life of one great thinker. You know, I'm Christian myself. So about a fourth of us characters are Christians but the tradition I rely on is it's much broader than that. So you'll find, um, you know, the pagan tradition in someone like Seneca, uh, Judaism uh, through Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, Confucius, the kind of the Eastern tradition, and, and kind of provocatively Andrea Dworkin, the mm. famous, infamous <laughs> anti-porn feminist. That's a, a, a very good overview of the book. I would encourage all listeners to read it. And um, you've raised an issue there that I actually wanted to dig down a little bit further with you, which is the question, the paradox of freedom, which you draw out very well, which is this strange situation in the 21st century where we are constantly trying to wriggle free from the bounds of responsibility or the chains of history, or in some cases, even from biological reality if you think of the transgender movement where people now seek liberation from sex from truth from uh, from what we understand to be uh, scientifically correct this kind of constant uh, attempt to uh, loosen any ties that we feel bind us in the name of freedom in the name of having more choice in the name of determining our own identity shaping our own view of the world but the paradox of course as you've just mentioned there and as you describe in your book 
is that this doesn't feel like a particularly free era. And, and those kinds of people who are doing that don't look or sound like free citizens. They often seem quite atomized, quite isolated, quite tetchy, quite angry, often on edge. So I wonder if I could just, um, just to kick off some of the discussion on the issue of freedom and, and what that tells us about the current moment. How would you juxtapose this phony freedom that we're constantly reaching for with what we, you would describe as a truer experience of freedom? As I said, the, the, the traditions I collect in this book are quite eclectic. And that's one of the things people have pointed out, that there's an ecumenical spirit to the book, um, especially people who are used to me as a kind of ca- as a public Catholic. The account of freedom that I think unites these traditions and why there is an unbroken thread w- in the title that kind of, that, that binds these different traditions together is one that I would say that we human beings have a certain objective source of happiness, that there is, there is a telos, there's an end to a, to a, a well-formed, rightly understood human life and that true freedom lies in, in, do, in, in pursuing that. And that means that, um, I mean, for the ancients broadly understood, freedom was found in being able to master your baser drives, to be able to de- be detached. This is something we find in the Christian tradition and the classical tradition. And in doing so, we become truly free, whereas merely giving in to every drive um, enslaves you in one way or another. And this account of tradition will, will celebrate various laws, mores, restrictions as again, this kind of paradoxically liberating. And I think today we see how the loss of some of these restrictions often brought about in the name of freedom have again, paradoxically made us less free. So let me give you an example. An obvious example, if I may draw from the book is the idea of human beings um, and our sexuality as being fundamentally embodied, that we have two sexes. Yes, there are people, there's a tiny minority of people who have congenital conditions, issues of their, with, their, with their reproductive system. I'm talking about hermaphrodites and others. Mm-hmm. But for the, for the, there's a kind of norm, and that norm of the human body is as a sexual binary, is defined by a sexual binary. And the attempt to overcome the body, the attempt to reject sex as an embodied reality and sexuality as a, as a human sexuality as, as, as binary has paradoxically resulted in all sorts of restrictions of freedom. Set aside transgender people themselves, but um, they're activists. It's not enough for them to say, well, I want to tr- change my sex over against the, the body that I've received from nature. You, Brandon, have to recognize me as this, uh, as something that, frankly, biology, not set aside Genesis, biology would tell you I'm not. And you have to, we have to create an entire new language and you have to conform yourself to that language in order for me to feel fully autonomous. And we've created, you know, a pretty uh, rigorous and at times vicious disciplinary mechanism for enforcing a new system that was born out of the impulse to defy the restrictions of nature, the restrictions of embodiedness. And, and, and again, we're, we're also undoing all sorts of gains that the women's movement made over the past century, whether in athletics or what have you, or in terms of um, 
bodily privacy, things that were protected for women, we're losing that in the name of an unbound freedom. So that's a very mm. contemporary and easy example. There are many others in the book, and but in each case, we see them working out of this same paradox that something that looked like an imposition by traditional society or an imposition by nature was overcome in the name of in the name of liberty and the result is is a paradoxical deprivation of liberty absolutely i want to push slightly further on this question of uh, the paradoxical freedom or the the idea that the strike for unbound freedom can have the contradictory impact of diminishing freedom not only for the person him him or herself but for society at, at large one thing i wanted to ask you in fact was i wonder if freedom is the right word to describe some of these phenomena. So I think freedom's a good thing. You think freedom's a good thing. Uh, I worry that some of the way in which contemporary identity politics in particular is understood as freedom gone too far or freedom completely unbound from anything that previously existed, I wonder if it's giving it too much credence to describe that stuff as being freedom at all. So just to stick for a moment with the example of the transgender movement, one thing that's always struck me about the transgender movement is that actually the thing that they're striving for is not really autonomy, but validation. So uh, that's one of the reasons why they make these demands upon everyone else to recognize their identity, to validate their identity. I had an experience at a university in Britain where someone, a male to supposedly female transitioner, stood up and demanded that I recognize that he was actually a woman and it was a very strange experience, very confrontational, obviously designed to compel me to say a particular thing, even if I didn't think that it was true. But also it was part of that process of requiring and needing, in fact, not even requiring, but needing everyone to validate your identity or else you feel increasingly diminished. So is the, is the problem here with some of these issues that you talk about, not so much um, freedom gone too far, but, but a culture of a therapeutic culture, which almost enslaves people to the external validation of others, which means that they are continually diminished because they are always seeking approval rather than genuinely living in a free way. I guess my answer is that those two accounts are not in, they're not contra uh, contradictory. They can be complementary. Right. That the initial drive to overcome a very clear natural barrier like embodied sexuality, that is, I think, is autonomy gone crazy, right? It right. is autonomy <laughs> pushed to an absurd limit and, and beyond it. And, and, and in a way, it's, I, I should know in the book, I, in the chapter that I touched the most on this is toward the end of the book. And the, the question, remember that each uh, chapter of the book is really framed around the question is, what do you owe your body? And what I suggest is that it's a very old temptation. There were uh, movements that began in late antiquity that emerged after the, the uh, Hellenistic conquest of, of the ancient Near East and North Africa. The, the Hellens, the Greeks, brought a certain worldview which was very comfortable with nature, uh, believed that nature could be understood using processes of, of, of reason, and but the people who had been conquered in a way didn't felt like everything had been upset. And, 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 mm. and one of the reactions they threw up were these Gnostic movements. And a, a core feature of Gnostic uh, religions is this sense of 
mind and matter being at, ten, at tension with each other, uh, ill at ease with each other. Um, spirit and matter, uh, body and soul, these are oppositional forces rather than the old Greek way of understanding the two as a dynamic union. So the Gnostics rebel against the body you know, and see the body in a way as this grotesque mistake that it, mm. it shouldn't have happened. It's through a cosmic mishap that we spiritual beings got trapped in these um, kind of fleshly forms that are given to decrepitude and death. Um, so uh, the, the temptation to seek to overcome and assert the you know the interior the spirit over the over the given the bodily is very old it's just now found a kind of in the transgender movement and i would say in transhumanism which is kind of a more extreme it's found a kind of technological outlet that it didn't have in late antiquity and so that's the autonomy part of it but you're to bring it back together you're right that once this technological kind of uh quote unquote right is exercised over someone's body, it's not enough, right? If mm. it's not enough that I merely take this leap against nature, that take this leap leap against the the embodied as such. Again, you have to you have to recognize me, otherwise I'll feel like a fraud. I feel like I maybe I haven't really transcended what I thought I had transcended. I feel like maybe the body um, is still an obstacle is still a stumbling block. So I can only get that sense through the therapeutics, through the, through the culture of validation. So that I think the, the, in my, in my reading of this, you're absolutely right that there, much of this goes back to a therapeutic culture, but the therapeutic culture is necessitated by this drive toward maximal autonomy to the point of overcoming, overcoming death. Ultimately, I think is, the, mm. is the final kind of impetus. We've been talking a lot on this week's podcast about the good life and how our political structures are undermining it, and also what we can do to give our lives meaning and purpose in a world that seems lost. One thing I cannot recommend enough is to sign up to Wondrium. Wondrium is a fantastic streaming service that will keep your mind engaged. It will give you access to a wealth of new knowledge, not just about history, politics or science, but also life lessons to help you become your best self. One course on Wondrium that has really gripped me is Think Like a Stoic, Ancient Wisdom for Today's World. And you can probably spot a bit of a connection here with this week's show. In Think Like a Stoic, you'll learn not only about the history of the Stoics and their ideas, but also how to use their knowledge practically to learn how to live by the light of reason and to be a good member of the human community. Wondrium has thousands of audio and video learning experiences to feed our curiosity that go so much further than what we'd find searching the web. Wondrium's content is fun and exciting, and it gives us access to a world of knowledge from top experts and storytellers. It has documentaries, tutorials, how-to guides, and more covering practically any subject you could imagine. Plus, it has all of our favorite series from The Great Courses Plus. Join me and experience your own mind-blowing moments with Wondrium. Right now, my listeners can get this extra special time-limited offer, a free month of unlimited access to the entire library. Don't delay. Go to wondrium.com slash Brendan to sign up right now. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash 
Brendan. Wondrium.com slash Brendan. Okay, I want to talk to you about a few more ways in which the uh, unbound nature of our times actually contributes to a less free culture, which I think is one of the most important ideas in your book and very well argued and examined. One issue that you uh, have touched upon many times is the issue of the market, the free market, the the, the fundamentalist view of the market as this uh, apparently should be this unbound place. The internet, large parts of the internet are controlled by free marketeers, by people who uh, come from the capitalist elites. And there was this idea for a long time that a, f- a free market and a free internet would generate uh, uh, unprecedented freedom of thought and freedom of conscience and the right of people to express views that might once have been considered um, controversial or difficult or problematic. But that's a good example, isn't it, of where things have gone slightly awry because I feel less free, well, not me in particular, but some people feel less free to express themselves than they have for a very long time. We know that there are certain things that are unsayable on the internet. We know that the sitting president of the United States can potentially be shoved off these platforms that are overseen by free market uh, individuals. So talk us through a little bit about how the tech oligarchy has actually generated, uh, even though it uses the language of freedom, it has generated a culture in which freedom of speech is stifled quite severely sometimes. Yeah, I think the way that I I understand this, um, and boy, there have been critics and prophets who who saw this coming long before I did, and they were proved um, prescient for it, that that culture of of the tech world and more broadly of the kind of free market fundamentalism, which is especially deeply rooted in the Anglo-American world, Mm. is only alert to the prospect of public tyranny. It is only uh, afraid of the possibility of um, government uh, uh, overreaching or restricting people's rights. And in being this in this way so single-mindedly concerned with that, it actually has created a legitimating ideology for private tyranny. That, uh, in fact, private actors, if given sufficient power, monopoly power, bargaining power vis-a-vis workers, um, what have you, can um, damage true freedom as much as government can, and maybe more in some ways, because our, our governments are still creatures of uh, really the, of the nation state, something dating back to the um, 18th and 19th century, uh, whereas these corporations are often transnational. The minute they're displeased with your tax arrangements, they can go off to the Isle of Jersey or Switzerland or what have you <laughs> and punish you for not kowtowing to them so that they have that transnational quality, whereas we have still mostly national regulatory mechanisms to deal with them. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that that ideology of unbound freedom was was a lie. Uh, uh, unbound freedom through the market. We see that because as soon as someone can monopolize a, a particular market, or if it's an employer, can be as, as the buyer of something, um, you can limit labor power. If you're the seller, you can labor, uh, you can limit consumer power, bargaining power. These imbalances we should have been alert to, and uh, we see the working out of them. And yes, you remember 
I mean, we talked about kind of some of this big tech stuff last time too, but you will remember um, this platform parlor emerged partly in response mm-hmm. to um, the techno libertarians saying, well, if you don't like censorship on YouTube and Twitter, whatever, build your own platform. And then someone did parlor. And then they, <laughs> they, they colluded as nakedly as you could and essentially eradicate parlor from the internet. They took away, sir, they took it away out of the apps, Amazon web services, deprived them of, of server capacity. And that's it. There you go. Build your own. So I think in a richer understanding of, of freedom, of democracy, we have to think about uh, the possibility of you know, private corporate tyranny much more seriously. That's very well described. And um, I agree very much. And I think that's one of the issues on which your idea of binding us to something or a rebinding to tradition or to older uh, ideas of wisdom, which I want to come on to in a minute. It's through those, those kinds of issues that that came alive for me and made a lot of sense. So I was thinking, for example, of something like the vote for Brexit, which in many ways can be understood as an attempt to rebind politics to the nation state, to bring it back to those kinds of traditions, to those kinds of restrictions where what happens within a country is determined by the people who live in that country rather than by these transnational capitalist elites or these transnational global institutions. So it's a pulling back of politics into something that makes sense to people. And there's um, there's a really, I think, a very important part of your argument where you talk about how the, the liberating consequences of being bound, which will strike some people as contradictory, of course. But you talk in particular about being bound to religious tradition and, and to authorities and how this can give people a moral backbone. And you have this really interesting way of putting it, which is that the person who knows where he comes from and where he's headed won't easily bend along the way. And I think that's a very useful way not only to understand some of the problems of paradoxical freedom at the moment, which is if you are completely unbound, even from biological truth and not to mention family and community and everything else, you will probably be more likely to bend to fads, bend to trends, find yourself being uh, confused and disorientated and potentially even manipulated. Whereas if you have a stronger sense of grounding and a stronger sense of self, that's less likely to happen and therefore you're a more rounded person. So to what extent do you think that one of the great conflicts of our time, which is, I guess, David Goodhart describes it as somewheres versus anywheres. Other people describe it as open versus closed or globalist versus nationalist. But to what extent do you think that is part of this process? So I talk about, in the book, I talk about this primarily from an individual perspective because the book's questions are addressed, you know, kind of to my son and hopefully a reader who might be interested to it. In, in it. And, and so it, it aims at asking, you know, for you as an individual, what's the value in being bound? But there is a political and social analog to this and mm-hmm. um, frankly a class analog to this because it, it is always the case that the ordinary worker and especially since the rise of industrial capitalism the ordinary worker has been um, much more uh, vulnerable to all the dislocations created by uh, you know the kinds of societies that that the kind of bourgeois ownership class, and then later the, the managerial class that services that class, the kind of society that they created 
you know, they, it, it very much is has this impulse of mo- constant mobility, uh, of seeing um, uh, local traditions, local norms, and preferences in a way as as unnecessary or annoying barriers to what the market could do if um, labor capital and and uh, uh, goods and services all had absolute freedom to do what they would. And there's been a kind of process of, frankly, I mean, this is the paradox, is that using government power, mm. capital and mm. people who service capital have uprooted, consciously uprooted the local, the small, and replaced it with um, larger structures. But, you know, it, the, the working class person... Uh, all he or she has experienced out of this is is more or less a lot of dislocation, more or less a lot. And especially over the past, I would say maybe 30, 40 years, when neoliberal managerial capital got such an upper hand, you know, with the, with a kind of weakening of labor unions as a force, the erosion of the nation state. So, yeah, I mean, I, and, and so people want, people want certainty a little bit. They, people want uh, a degree of, political security in the United States that expresses itself as worries about our health insurance system, which is quite savage. And it doesn't, you know, there's always this risk that you'll have some, some illness as we all tend to do. And it's a sort of abyss will open up eventually. Mm -hmm. And, and um, there is perfectly legitimate expressions of uh, anxiety about immigration, which uh, hurts working class wages and, you know, it, it only now maybe are some governments in the West are becoming responsive to this, although not, not the Biden administration. It's still, it's still back in the, um, it's as though we're back in, I don't know, in the 90s with, as far as <laughs> immigration. But, but the point is this, I, that I'm agreeing with you ultimately that the, the yearning for, for stability, which is a very perfectly natural one, has a political and class Based dimension if we zoom out from from the level of the of the individual it's a good example of how uh, what is promoted as freedom by the elites is is very often experienced as non freedom or an imposition by ordinary people and it's it's interesting it's always been interesting to me the commonality between the woke elites or however we want to refer to them the kind of regressive side in the contemporary culture war the commonality between those people and the neoliberal elites, because what both share in common is a disregard for tradition, a disregard for community, a a kind of self-conscious uprootedness. You know, look how fashionable and wonderful we are. We fly around and do all these kinds of things. We're not bound by family. We're not bound by tradition. We're not bound by even by borders. And both of those different forms of political life are experienced by most ordinary people as an imposition, whether it's the woke set undermining the family, even calling into question the idea that there are men and women and mothers and fathers, which is experienced by many people as an attack on the building blocks of their lives, or the capitalist class turning up, opening something up, giving people work, but then subjecting them to the whims of uh, the, the needs of neoliberalism over the needs of their own lives. But I want to... Um, just to bring it back to that question of moral backbone and not bending uh if it when you have something like that as an individual or as a community you're less likely to bend or you're more likely to have a robustness that is necessary for the exercise of freedom 
one thing that I uh, really connected with me from your book was the discussion of data versus morality or facts versus truth, I guess. And so you talk about um, a very contemporary line, the kind of Ben Shapiro view, you know, facts don't care about your feelings and here's all the data and and there you go, that proves my point and it proves that you're wrong. It's a quite common approach to contemporary discussion. But of course, what it overlooks is that the discovery of truth or the discovery of the good way to live is a bit more complicated than that and is not just reducible to a pie chart or a graph or a set of data. It often involves subjective discussions, subjective uh, debates about what is the best way to live and how to achieve it. So how do you understand that uh, the emergence of this obsession with data and how it relates to the diminishing of a, a, an attempt to discover any kind of moral truth? Roughly 400 years ago, maybe that's if, if you can date it, um, there emerged a modern scientific method that yielded incredible discoveries and has continued to yield incredible discoveries about the physical workings of nature. And it's just awe-inspiring what we know, the fact that we can now, for example, visually see, thanks to the uh, Event Horizon Telescope, we can actually see the outline of a black hole, is is incredible. The fact that we can pinpoint the the birth of, uh, 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 of, at least of our universe, by kind of reversing the clock on the Big Bang, you you name it, all the kind of medical discoveries, all of that is incredibly valuable. I think that what what I argue in the book is that that's that's science, and it's a very noble enterprise, and it deserves all the credit we can give it. And if if I were the you know philosopher king, I would give a lot more money actually to basic basic research than maybe any government would. So that's just to make that very clear. But the problem begins and began when people uh, attempted to substitute the scientific way of understanding the world and and, and impose it on the whole of the world. So that Mm. in that way, the only things that were truly knowable are these things we call facts, which we can generally express in, in mathematical language, which are things that we can observe with our senses or measure with our scientific instruments. And everything else, things like premonitions, things like Reason, as the, as the ancients and the medieval medievals understood it, morality that all becomes kind of provisional, subjective. It comes under question, so that the really the only things we can know are these facts, and and the entire everything else is this misty realm of kind of bullshit. And so that the and the university <laughs> campuses, the departments that are doing real truth seeking, are the you know computer science. Uh, cosmology, astronomy, those kinds of departments. And frankly, and, and then you have everything else, which is provisional knowledge, like mm. art or, mm. or ethics or philosophy or metaphysics or, or, or religion. And so it's this divorcing of facts as absolutely true and everything else as dubious. I think that's a huge problem because, um, first of all, because it removes from the realm of true and false, a whole bunch of questions that we all face in our life. So questions about morality, uh, actually, if you believe that there's a, for example, there's a natural law so that you can discern by reason how a human being can really flourish and some ways of living promote that and some ways of living don't promote that, that you cannot, no, you can no longer think about that in this 
kind of strictly quote unquote fact based scheme. You can't think about the natural law as as providing true answers to questions that are not scientific questions, but they are nevertheless pertinent questions to which we can, uh, you know, reasonable people can give true or false answers, better or worse answers. Mm. That's mm. That, that's one consequence, and another one is, frankly, I mean, to make it practical, is the treatment of scientists as you know the ultimate arbiters, which we especially saw over the past past year. I'm grateful for science. We, you know, we've with the vaccine, we've we've come close to conquering, or in fact, have, from my point of view, have conquered the novel coronavirus. But at the height of decision making about these things, we so prioritized one way of knowing at the expense of others, right? So statesmen began to just give up their brains to you know, guys like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Ferguson. I'm not saying those people are experts and they, they should be considered, but a statesman has to consider all sorts of things that, that, that yeah. Dr. Fauci or Dr. Ferguson can't think about. So for example, yes, there's a dangerous virus. How do we address it? But there are also other harms associated with, for example, lockdowns. How will children fare psychologically? How would they continue to learn if they can't go to classrooms? Loneliness, depression, joblessness, alcoholism, suicide. Those are things that, so the statesman has to take, or stateswoman has to take all of that into account. But the scientific mentality yeah. completely overrode the better sense of many governments around the world. And so, again, I, I blame that on this view of like, if you have a chart, you have a point. If not, then, you know, you're, you, you don't <laughs> quite have, um, you don't have a right to the, to, to, to being seriously heard in the public square and decision-making halls of power. And, uh, and I think that that problem you describe is probably going to intensify because over the past 18 months, it's been very apparent in relation to COVID-19 where scientists have become almost like the philosopher kings telling us how to think, what to do, how to live. And any question of the moral good or the moral necessity, the right to work, the right to earn a living, the right to uh, make your own choices about whether to leave your home or not. All those things were kind of pushed to one side under the boot of, uh, um, you know, literally charts on a, a kind of PowerPoint, which is what we had in the UK with our, our experts saying, look, this is what's happening on the graph today, and therefore you can't do A, B, and C. So, uh, But I think if you look also at something like the climate change issue, that's a good example, I think, of the way in which scientific fact or what what is currently considered scientific fact of uh, everyone forgets the falsifiability point of science which is that it's supposed to be questionable and challengeable and changeable but what is cons currently considered scientific fact is marshaled to the end of telling people how to live and telling people what to do and one of the problems with that is that it it reduces humankind to such an extraordinary degree so the worth of a human life, if you go by the uh, politics of climate change, the worth of a human life is now the question of how much carbon do you admit? So uh, it, people will literally talk about the birth of children in Africa, for example, where there is a great panic about too many children being born. The birth of a child in Africa is measured by its carbon footprint. Is it too large? Is it too big? Is it going to cause too much destruction? The same thing is said about the birth of children in the West, of course. We have people like Harry and Meghan saying they're only going to have two children because they want to limit their impact on the planet. So there's this incredible reductionist view 
even of human life, so that it becomes something that is simply measured by its wastefulness, by what can be plotted on a chart of destructiveness, rather than the far higher, more important question that um, troubled the minds of people for centuries, which is how do you become a good person? Yeah, and as C.S. Lewis says in a really prophetic essay, The Abolition of Man, which I rely on in the chapter about this false distinction between fact and moral truth or fact and philosophical truth. Um, you know, if, if man wants to become a mere fact, a fact he will become. And seen through that lens, it, yes, human beings can be dehumanized, frankly. They can be, uh, they have nothing special about them. They're just these globs of molecules and what they think of their as their opinions and their emotions, their loves, all of those are mere synapses firing in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, what's special about them? What, why, why should human life go on? Why should, why should, why should Harry and Megan have two? Why not just have zero? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is just a, why should they continue living at all? I mean, in that frame, it can become incredibly dangerous. By the way, I'm very worried about having g- tasted what you can do with lockdowns if they begin to apply it to climate change, right? Uh, I'm sorry, yeah. but we haven't flattened the curve of, uh, of the, you know, whatever global temperature. So another two weeks. And you see how it, it, it all works out for the Jeff Bezoses of the world, right? Mm. It works out really well, <laughs> frankly, for people like you and me who can do much of our work from laptops. It only really hurts working class people. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not a Marxist. I, you know, I, I, uh, at least I don't consider myself one. I was one when I was much younger, but the class dimension of this becomes undeniable even for for someone who's a conservative like me i just can't help but but notice it and i think we have to say what what kind of class warfare by proxy is taking place through these mechanisms of 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 lockdowns or wokeness or climate change where tensions between classes get mystified in this realm of of wokeness or, or dealing with the virus and so forth so as to you know not really deal with kind of fundamental economic injustices. That's, that's where I've come down on. I think that's very well put. And in fact, one of, the, one of the other paradoxes of the time we live in is that conservatives often seem to care more about the predicament that working class people often find themselves in than the left does. And the left has abandoned that kind of argument and those kinds of economic concerns in favor of a culture war. Yeah, I never hear anything like that from the left. There's a funny Italian cartoon I saw where it's like the progression of the of the left activists through the decades. And, you know, it's like in the 19th century, you know, the point of concern of a left activist is, you know, the chimney sweeping orphan boy in, in, a, in a Victorian town or something. And then the, the next one is like sort of industrial worker. And then, but then you come down to 2021 and it's like a drag queen, you know, that, yes. that's, <laughs> that's the locus of left wing concern. <laughs> Hi, it's Fraser again. One thing many of us have come to realise after practically a year and a half of lockdown is that we really do live most of our lives online. And if we're not careful, we can end up giving away far too much personal information that can end up in the hands of all kinds of other parties. If you want to keep yourself safe and keep your information private, you have to start using a VPN, a virtual private network. And I can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. Here's why. 
ExpressVPN doesn't log your activity online. Lots of cheap or free VPNs make money by selling your data to advertisers, which is pretty ironic and almost defeats the purpose of having a VPN. But ExpressVPN does not do this. They even developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes their VPN servers incapable of storing any data at all. Then there's the speed. ExpressVPN now uses Lightway, a new VPN protocol they engineered to make user speeds faster than ever. I've experimented with other VPNs in the past, and they would sometimes really slow down my connection. But ExpressVPN is always blazing fast, and it lets me stream videos in HD quality with no buffering at all. And it's really easy to use. You don't need any technical skills. Just fire up the app and tap one button to connect. I've even got my grandparents using it. You really don't need to be tech savvy to get it going. And it's not just me saying all of this. CNET, The Verge, and many other tech journals rate ExpressVPN as the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Use this show's link, expressvpn.com slash Brendan today, and you can get an extra three months for free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Brendan. Visit expressvpn.com slash Brendan to learn more. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is whether you think, not to get too hippie-ish about it, but whether you think one of the problems of today is a crisis of wonder. And the reason I was thinking this, I mean, a lot of your book is about God and religion. Where is God? What is God for? Is God interested in politics? And can you be uh, spiritual without being religious? And these kinds of questions, and you you tackle them all very, very well. But it strikes me that you sometimes you juxtapose the um, the potentially liberating life that could be lived under the bounds of religious tradition, which will strike people as a counterintuitive view. But you 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 articulate it very well uh, with the seemingly liberating post enlightenment post religious life, which actually can be quite deadening and quite. Uh, an imposition on on our choices and our our understanding of ourselves and our sense of meaning, but I wonder if the problem is. And I want to just talk about Marx briefly because you quote Marx. You quote the opium of the people. Marx's view of religion as the opium of the people, and uh, to be fair, you quote it at more length than most people do. So you also contain you also include Marx's line that it is the sigh of the oppressed creature. Most people only quote Marx saying that religion is the opium of the masses, when of course the whole line from his introduction to a, a contribution to the critique of Hegel's philosophy of right is religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people, which of course is a more is a far more generous understanding of religion than most people think that Marx has, because they only hear the opium of the people line. But the reason I, I raise that is because one of the things that was quite transformative in terms of how I think about the world was the emergence of the new atheists and the new atheists are among my least favorite people of recent times because i think what happens there is i i grew up as a catholic i believed in god i was an altar boy i did all of those things and then i became an atheist and a humanist so i kind of shifted quite radically in the other direction but i've always thought that the thing that has traditionally connected 
those who sought meaning through religion and those who sought meaning through a more humanist approach was an understanding of the specialness of humankind. The idea that they were special creatures, they weren't like other animals, they had the capacity for free will, they had the capacity to be good people. And the great divide was over how that was best facilitated. Was it best facilitated through God or was it best facilitated through more humanist ways of organizing society? And what you have with recent political outlooks, the new atheists, the politics of environmentalism, the politics of scientism, is a complete rejection of the idea of the specialness of humankind. So that essentially we are basically just clever chimpanzees who are who who pollute the planet. We're a collection of evolutionary determined uh, behaviors. We're a collection of DNA. We're just stardust, you know, created by the Big Bang. So there's that very reductionist, anti-human, well, the abolition of man. So I guess the question I, I want to ask you is, do you think it's as simple as religion gives us a sense of purpose and meaning and wonder and that's the only thing that does that? Or do you think it's possible that so long as we hold to this view of humankind as a potentially good force on earth, that that can be achieved through other means as well? I, I guess one thing to, to address first is the the people you described that we've been talking about this whole hour the, uh, who hold fast to a scientific, I, I, I don't say scientific, but scientific view of the world or um, this kind of neo, neo-nihilistic, really, environmentalism. What's, what's strange to me about it is that, on the one hand, they believe very ferociously in the justice of their cause, right? Mm-hmm. They have a, they, they, have a, uh, they believe that um, there is a right and wrong and they're on the right side of things. And maybe they are on some questions, maybe they aren't, but whatever. But at the same time, their worldview undercuts any sense of universalist moral claims, yeah. right? It was, yeah. In other words, it, if human beings really are, as, we've, as they describe, just the collect bundles of atoms and b- b- molecules and blah, 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 I, I don't see why you wouldn't acquiesce to First of all, what, what, why, why is there an ethic of taking care of the earth? The earth mm. as, a, as, as, our, as our home, as our common home, there's a norm written into it which human beings should discover and attempt to honor this, this environment that we inherit. That all assumes the existence of an objective morality. That all assumes that human beings are also, uh, as you said, are, are rational and therefore capable of, of ascending to this higher morality of, and not being merely vicious, selfish um, jerks. So I, I think that there's a tension between their, I don't know, radical atheism, radical secularism, and the, the, th- the causes they profess to hold dear. And then a larger point is, is, to your deeper question of, is it possible without religion to discover, to re-imbue the world with sufficient wonder so that we can, we can be responsible and we can be truly free, but to do that without faith. And the way I would say is um, that the ancients and the medievals both had great faith in faith in the power of unaided human reason. In fact, what we get, I think, with the Enlightenment is a narrowing of what human reason is capable of achieving, right? The, the ancients believe that there is a natural law that is, is sort of inscribed into the, into the cosmos as a whole, 
and into, into the human heart as being a part of this orderly cosmos, this orderly, legible, beautiful cosmos. And that you didn't, you didn't need revelation to find out what natural law is, which is why cultures that don't have, let's say, Judeo-Christian revelation invariably revile theft, revile cheating, revile murder. So why is it that we're capable of doing that? It suggests that there is a natural law. Now, I would say that ultimately, and this is where you and I may disagree, but that's okay. But so, so, so natural law might be enough to restore a lot about our societies of what we've lost. But I think that, you know, just again, from a point of view of uh, where does that natural law come from? Who is its author? Ultimately leads, I think, I believe, to that, that the universe has an author. And that's, that's okay. I mean, that, you know, we, we don't have to agree on that. But at the very least, I think people like like yourself, you, you know, you say a kind of generous humanism, and people like me who are come from a, from a from a faith background, mm-hmm. we might find our common ground on the in an idea of a natural law, on the idea that our own reason ha- seems to tell us that our universe is is orderly, and per- therefore that suggests that it has a norm, and therefore that norm perhaps extends to us as creatures who happen to inhabit this this cosmos that might be and, and it doesn't requ- again it, i don't think that requires doesn't require revelation that is it doesn't require the bible absolutely one thing i found very interesting over the past few years is i seem to have far more in common with some people of faith than i do with those who describe themselves in the current period as being atheists or humanists or leftists or progressive or, or whatever words they use because that tradition, that kind of humanist tradition has gone very much down the road of reducing individuals to polluters, to, you know, the breeders, the problem of the impact that they have, a a very scientific, destructive view of the individual. Whereas people of faith, of course, for for the most part, still hold on to a view of people as being capable of good and the question of how do you facilitate that. But the just one more question on this particular issue. I wonder if one of the points we might make is that there is a difference between scientific reason and moral reason. So scientific reason is great when it's, you know, with science, when it's properly exercised as a falsifiable, curious human endeavor that is devoted to understanding nature and to creating medicine and and uh, making people well. That's We all love that. That's wonderful. The problem, of course, is scientism, which is the marshalling of the process of science to reveal supposed truths to people. And that's where we get into the marshalling of data, the marshalling of so-called facts to try and uh, guide people's lives. And that never works. That never works because people want a sense of meaning. They want a sense of purpose. They want a sense of something grander than those kinds of reducible points. So could one argue that the preferable case to make is for moral reason? So you're still guided by reason. You're still guided by some of the ideals that come out of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the idea of exercising your reason to overcome the vagaries of fate, for example. Uh, But it's a moral reason, which which involves making moral judgments, moral judgments about the best way to live, about bad ways to live, about the fact that someone with male genitalia is not a woman and never will be, and those kinds of moral judgments based on reason, but also based on a willingness to express a moral view that might be unpopular. 
I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree on the, on the distinction. Um, the, the only point I would make is that I, I, I just don't think it is the case that the pre-moderns or let's say the pre-enlightenment peoples lacked moral reason. Um, I, I just think that, that, you know, uh, <laughs> Aristotle's ethics yeah. is still pretty <laughs> insurmountable to my mind. <laughs> so that, that's how I would say, I mean, um, in terms of making that distinction and saying, look, don't, don't, yes, the, the, the uh, methods of inquiry that work in the laboratory are perfectly fine in the laboratory, but yeah. for the whole of life, you shouldn't. You might take the, what, what science tells us into account, but you also take into account other facts that aren't disclosed by science, but are nevertheless true facts about what it means to be fully human. I completely agree with that. Okay, my final question. Everyone should read your book. That goes without saying. And I think people will find it surprising and interesting and uh, full of fascinating ideas and fascinating suggestions, particularly in relation to the the, lib- the, the potentially liberating consequences of being more bound. I think that's a very, very interesting idea and people should engage with that seriously. Uh, but my final question for you is you've mentioned lockdown. We've all been in lockdown. It's been depressing. There has been a very strong class component to, you, to it, as you describe, and it has had onerous consequences on freedom, choice, health, everything else. So coming out of this period you guys are coming out of it or have come out of it. We are at the time of recording this podcast, we're coming out of it in the UK. We've just had Freedom Day where the authorities have graciously returned to us the freedoms that we fought for over 500 years. Very nice of them. So what do you think are the prospects, not only for the the, the fascinating view of freedom that you put forward in your book, but for freedom more broadly, after this moment in which we had an extraordinary, unprecedented experiment in authoritarianism. My fear, basically, let me put it this way, I, I, have, I have fairly depressing thoughts. And my fear <laughs> is that that the technocratic neoliberal elite has amassed such a degree of uh, propaganda power, censorship power, economic power, and in, in relation to workers, and technological prowess put those together. In my darker days, let me just put it this way, I just think that they can carry on. And they discovered a new power to shut economies on and off, destroy businesses that are considered non-essential. Well, every business is essential to the person who's running it or the workers who work there. But at any rate, I don't know. What what, what if they just carry on forever and, and, and no kind of mass reaction comes about? And that's my, mm-hmm. uh, my, uh, my dark days. On my, on my more optimistic days or hopeful days, I think that the situation, as we talked about last time, is so kind of borderline dystopian or really is dystopian. I mean, this is an argument I want to make at length in a book. But so many of the dystopias of, of, of Western literature have come true and continue mm-hmm. to come true. And yet we can't like pull ourselves back somehow. Mm-hmm. We observe it. Like if, if you, if you're a fan of dystopic fictions as I am, we observe it. You're like, aha, that's happening too. Like <laughs> there, there's, Huxley, you know, there's Orwell, but we can't actually stop it. But I feel like if, it, if it's bad enough, sometimes I think if it gets bad enough that, you know, there, there will be a mass reaction of some sort or mass kind of reawakening. Sarab, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you, Brendan, as always. 
Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.